Hi, I'm Elena Joe, and this is episode 17 of Big Picture Relationships, all about depression. Depression is a pretty pervasive mental health struggle and that dramatically impacts our relationships with ourselves, our loved ones, and our higher power. So I wanted to share a little more background about why that happens, and I learned a few things through the first interview ever on this podcast— all about depression with Dr. Kelly Wozniak, who is a psychiatric prescriber. Now, every now and then we'll have interviews here on Big Picture Relationships when there's an expert who can describe something better than I can. Today, I'm going to share a conversation between Dr. Kelly Wozniak and myself about depression specifically, and she'll describe in layman's terms what happens at a chemical level and what medication actually does, and if you have to take it forever, and much, much more. I learned some new and interesting things even after working in this field for so long. I did a poor job on the call introducing Kelly at the beginning, so I'd like to share that she has 15 years experience in this field, and she's made mental health and psychiatric prescribing the focus of her career as a nurse practitioner. I've had a chance in my career to work with many psychiatrists and prescribers, and Dr. Wozniak is one of the most clinically sophisticated and compassionately invested prescribers that I've had the privilege of working with. So let's turn this over to that interview, and I hope this is a helpful update for some of you. This is Big Picture Relationships with Elena Joe, a therapist sharing insights, ideas, and real-life pep talks that encourage you to expand your perspective, maybe shift some behaviors, and make the most of real-life relationships so you can live a happy life right now. Hello, my friends. We have an extra special treat today. I have with us for this episode, Dr. Kelly Wozniak, and she is a nurse practitioner with a focus on mental health. And I've been lucky enough to work with Kelly on the teenagers that we've worked with together in treatment, and I know that she knows her stuff. So welcome, Kelly. We are really grateful to have your expertise with us here today. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Now, I, as a therapist, am well-versed in helping and healing, and I have the overview of science of what happens in depression. Today, we're going to focus on depression. But instead of me trying to explain the science from my non-science background, I'm really happy to have you here so we can ask a few more questions about what is actually happening chemically in the brain for depression, and then we'll move on to some potential fixes for that. So my first question for you and your expertise is what happens chemically in the brain for depression? Let's just start there. Okay. Depression is much more complex than just the chemicals. And it's not as easy as if we are just missing certain chemicals or have too many of another chemical. Um, And so I wanted to talk a little bit about how the brain cells themselves communicate with each other and explain that process. The brain cells themselves are called neurons, and each neuron communicates with each other through electrical and chemical signals. And an electrical signal releases the chemicals that help the chemicals bind to receptors, and they either activate or inhibit the nerve cells. And so once a certain amount of chemicals are present, the receptors then tell the nerve cells to stop releasing the chemicals and start bringing the chemicals back into the cell. So as far as chemicals go, they definitely play a role both inside and outside the nerve cells, but there are millions of chemical reactions in your brain. And some scientists say maybe even billions of chemical reactions. 
So when you look at it that way, our understanding of how chemicals and chemical imbalances work is very limited and scientists are barely scratching the surface. But um, more important than brain chemistry is the nerve cells themselves, how they grow, how they communicate with each other. And in short, brain chemicals relay messages from one nerve cell to another nerve cell in the brain. And any failure in this is what can negatively affect the mood. So I hear you saying it's a lot more complex and there's just, there's not enough of a certain chemical or too much of a certain chemical in these, in these mental health issues. And so for depression, it might be that, or it could be anything that has to do with the communication in that brain chain in the actual biology. Exactly. So a side note here, Kelly, you and I both share, you know, a, a faith-filled foundation and maybe some, some old myths that sometimes come from, from a conservative culture about how trying harder or being a little more spiritual should be enough to overcome a depression challenge. As a clinician, can you tell me a little bit about the, I don't know, why that is or isn't true? Yeah, well, you know, I think oftentimes, of course, friends and families, family members and friends, they they mean well. Um, and oftentimes, they don't truly understand clinical depression. Um, maybe they haven't had a family member with it. Maybe they haven't experienced it themselves. It's common for everyone to have a down day here and, and there. And so, you know, oftentimes when a family member or a friend has a loved one who is dealing with chronic depression, they'll have advice for them and they'll say, you know, why don't you just pray more or why don't you be more spiritual or read more scriptures? Why don't you go to the gym? How about eating more of a balanced diet, you know, or just count your blessings. And with depression, you know, sometimes just getting out of bed is overwhelming and apathy and numbness are signs of depression. So it's normal to feel apathetic towards all aspects of life. And when you, when the person with depression is feeling hopeless and helpless, you know, praying, going to the gym, eating right, counting your blessings, you know, they, they feel overwhelmed by the list of things to do to feel better. But they also feel hopeless as in, you know, nothing they do is really going to help. And most likely they've already tried these things anyway. But also I remind my patients that when you're depressed, all relationships suffer. You don't have a healthy relationship with yourself. You often, you know, have the self-loathing and negative self-talk. And even with severe depression, you have self-harm or thoughts of suicide. And then your relationships with others suffer too. It's difficult to look outside yourself and have the energy to foster relationships with others. Um, and when you don't love yourself, it's hard to love others. But spirituality and having a relationship with God or a spiritual being, that relationship can also suffer. You know, oftentimes, too, when, when you feel bad about yourself, you might feel like you're, you're not worthy of love or attention from other people. And that same thing with God, you may feel that the depression is a result of a lack of faith or a flaw. So I just, I just say, you know, if you have a family member or friend, instead of offering advice, the best thing that you can do is to offer specific ways to help people who are depressed, listen without judgment, 
and then um, help lead them to professionals, whether that's therapists or medical providers. You know, the mind, body, and spirit are all connected, and if one is suffering, they all suffer. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to describe it. So if if we've come to the conclusion that sometimes just trying harder, whether it's a diet change or an exercise change or, you know, spiritual effort. So if just trying harder can't outrun that chemical or biological fact, there's really two directions to take here that I'd like to ask you questions about. And we'll talk about medication in a moment, and that is sort of your specialty. But first, and because sometimes medication is not always the first answer people want to jump to, can we start just for a moment, Kelly, with how therapy really, and by therapy, I'm meaning thought and behavior changes that often come through a professional who knows exactly what types of thought and behavior changes. Can you talk about how that might influence chemicals in the brain or actually influence the biology of the brain? Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure we understand exactly how therapy influences the brain, chemistry, the chemistry of the brain, but I do know that stress can suppress the production of new nerve cells in the brain, and it also triggers chemical reactions that can have negative outcomes. And just as external stressors can cause suffering and mental health changes and mood changes, so can our thoughts. And so changing the un- our unhealthy thought patterns can decrease stress and likely prevent the triggering of those chemical reactions in the brain. There again, because the causes of depression are complex, you know, there are many things besides the chemicals that come into play, your genetics, like I said before, external or internal stress. Also, sometimes the medication you're taking or medical problems you have, so complex, it's It is very difficult to know which treatment will work best for each individual, but research, you know, like you said, oftentimes the therapy can help certain individuals with their depression. Uh, Medication alone could help, you know, but together they help more than either by itself. But one of the more interesting facts I uh, read recently about research and medication and therapy, it says that there was a recent report that said medication is more effective for patients with a family history of mood disorders, while therapy may be more effective for those with childhood adversity. And I guess I've always realized that it was just nice to kind of see that in writing. And as you change unhealthy thought patterns, that often helps in ways medication can't. Therapy can shift thoughts, attitudes, and negative coping mechanisms that have been developed over the lifespan or the time of depression. But Absolutely. Well, can I inter- yeah. interject here? Like, yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. that's so great to hear that in, in a study. And I, like you, that makes sense. That backs up everything yeah. I've seen in my years of therapy because there are yeah. some for whom medication does very little because their thought patterns mm-hmm. are so stuck or their healing mm-hmm. is so stuck. And, you know, you can throw all the medication you want and a depression that's caused really from somebody's own patterns or traumas or life circumstances. And then there are others for whom, you know, they do great work in therapy, but they can't outrun their genetics or can't outrun the biology that they come with. And just uh, sharing your story with someone that you can trust in a safe environment sharing life experiences or trauma with someone who truly knows how to help, it's often the best medication there is. Absolutely. Feeling accepted. (laughs) Feeling accepted and and finding something different to do about, you know, with all those feelings is Mm -hmm. powerful. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, then that leads, I guess, to the, the, the secondary question I have there. So can you explain a little bit about how medication influences chemicals or the brain patterns or the biology involved in depression? So medication increases the concentration of the chemicals in the spaces between the nerve cells in the brain. Essentially, it just helps the brain do what it's supposed to do. Um, Another way of looking at it is medication increases the concentration of chemicals like we talked about. And when this takes place, the nerves grow and form new and better connections. The interesting thing, when you use medication, you know, oftentimes you'll have someone who is severely depressed and um, I'll start them on a medication, you know, they'll start feeling better in four to six weeks or sometimes even longer than that. And it's a little frustrating because the process does take weeks enough because it's not something as simple as increasing chemical levels in the brain. It takes a while to work because as you increase the chemicals in the brain, the chemicals themselves help the nerves to grow and form new connections. And when you have new nerves and healthy connections, that's when you're going to have less depression symptoms. No, that makes a lot of sense because I do know there are some medications that don't work. <laughs> you don't see full yeah. effect for quite a while. Yeah. I've never thought about the fact that, that those are actually nerves potentially regrowing and connections regrowing. That makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. Yeah. You'll hear doctors talk about forming new neuropathways. And that, yeah, that's a big area of study right now because if you could develop medication that specifically promotes nerve growth and new nerve pathways, you would get a much quicker response in the depression symptoms. Well, that's good. That brings up another question along those lines, which is, are there certain cycles of medication? If someone's taking an antidepressant or something that's going to affect those chemical concentrations, is that something they may need forever? Or is it possible that it may stimulate brain cell growth so that it's not a forever medication? Tell me about that. Yeah, that's a really good question. And of course, when I I talk with patients about medication, especially the patients that are more hesitant to start medicine, they always want to know how long they'll need to be on the medicine. And, you know, you get someone who's depressed thinking that, well, there's no hope and nothing's going to work anyways. um, And they don't want to try anything because of that. Or they think that if they start a medication, they'll need to be on it forever. Um, it really is it it is um, really hard to know for sure. And there again, that goes back to um, you know genetics. Depression runs in families, and certain genes make people more vulnerable to depression. And genes also affect the way your liver uses medicine and your brain uses medicine. And throughout life as your genes turn off and on in order to make the right proteins at the right time, there can be a problem with the the on and off switch of the genes. And if that happens, your your biology is altered and then your mood is altered. You know, it would it would be wonderful if we can identify a depression gene and know if you were going to be someone with episodic depression or someone with chronic depression. But there again, mood is affected by dozens of genes. And so so we don't know. You asked a great question. I'm going to come back to that because I just had 
one other thought. Before even thinking about medication, it's so important to make sure one of my biggest jobs is to make sure that there's not something else causing the depression. Interesting enough, 10 to 15% of all depressions wouldn't respond to therapy or medication necessarily because 10 to 15% of all depressions are caused by either a medication a patient's already taking or a medical problem. And so you need to identify those first. Sometimes it's just as easy as removing a certain type of medication a patient is on or treating a thyroid problem or sleep disorder or lack of vitamin B12 or, you know, things like that. But getting back to treating with medication, there's episodic depression and that has to be diagnosed where you have depression symptoms for at least two weeks. Studies show that the median duration of depression is about 20 weeks. But some people have chronic depression, and that's defined as depression lasting at least two years. And the chronic depression is going to be the depression that causes more functional impairment and increases the risk of suicide. It's also um, linked to other psychiatric disorders a lot of times. And most of the time, people with chronic depression report both childhood trauma and family history of mood disorders. So in these people, they're definitely going to be the people that need medication and therapy. And half of patients who have chronic depression will suffer a relapse of depression one to two years after they stop treatment. So those patients would uh, most likely benefit from some type of maintenance therapy, uh, whether that's therapy or medication, whatever's most appropriate. But in general, research shows most patients need to be treated for 6 to 12 months just to increase their chances of remission, hoping that based on the patient's genetics, they would be someone who would be more likely to develop new neuropathways and new nerves in the brain that fix the problem over time. I always recommend 12 months of medication to my patients and then to slowly taper off medicine under my direction or direction of another medical provider. Excellent. Well, with some of the newer, maybe not research, or maybe it's finally hitting mainstream, you know, people talking about this neuroplasticity of the brain and the brain's ability mm-hmm. to adapt and, and form new neural pathways, even through, let's say, thought replacement or, you know, thought changing. So tell me if this is accurate. As a therapist, I seem to see, for most patients, the best benefit with medication that boosts the biological side of what is what they're struggling with chemically, depression-wise. And then because their mood is elevated, they're more able to presently focus on new thoughts and building new neural pathways through changed behaviors and, you know, change thought patterns, healing from trauma. And then, like you said, after a course of medication and, and new thoughts and new pathways, they've also built through changed thoughts and behaviors that perhaps tapering off and trying without medication, that might be a better time because their change in thoughts, change in patterns, and that new boost can also help them gain remission from depression for a longer period of time. Is that an accurate way to describe that? Yes, yes, exactly. And that's why I definitely encourage therapy once I help a patient find the medication that is working the best for them. um, We kind of set, I I tell them that the timer starts at the period of time that the medication is working at its best. 
And I give them a year and just say, you know, this is the time to be consistent with medication and consistent with therapy because so much, like you said, can change in the brain with that combination. So Mm -hmm. I just, I laugh to myself and remember conversations when I was first at graduate school with women, I guess, of the generation above us, let's just put it that way and saying, mm-hmm. you know, oh, mm-hmm. no, I didn't have depression. I just needed Prozac for a little bit. And then I was fine, you know, asking if they'd ever mm-hmm. considered therapy. Oh, no, no, I just, you know, Prozac for a little bit and I'd be fine. And, mm-hmm. and how, how mm-hmm. faulty perhaps that thinking was, because while that may help chemicals, if the stinky thinking is still there or the same patterns that that won't be a lasting help for, you know, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, it's, it's hard. And it's hard to know ahead of time, which group you're going to fit in. And, you know, just like, you'll have medical conditions that where the body heals itself, that can happen with depression. And, you know, sometimes the the mind will heal itself. Uh, But more times than not, the mind also needs some medical uh, attention, and uh, professional help a large majority of people can can get to that remission state. And if not, ongoing medication and therapy is important. And it's something that I feel uh, patients have to come to the conclusion that this is a lifetime challenge for them and something that they have to proactively focus on treating, just like any other uh, medical condition that could be chronic. Well, as we're winding down here, Kelly, I'm curious if, you know, in the last, let's say, 10 years, depression treatment has changed any anything you have to share about depression in the last 10 years. The mental health field has just blossomed over the last few years. The last little while, there have been, I like to call them smarter medications, where the medication, instead of just being a band-aid to the mood, they can fix the mood and they can they can do it in a more precise way way so you get less side effects and that's always that's always mm-hmm. exciting yeah there's there's more and more gene research i happen to be um someone who just loves studying genes and genetics and so gene research is something that i'm always always watching and you know the more gene research there is the the better we understand the genes involved um, in depression and then in the function of each gene. And so we can get more individualized treatment. Um, going along with individualized treatment, the pharmacogenetic testing um, has been available the last few years. And that testing where you can look at the individuals to see how their liver uses medication and how their brain responds to medication. I have seen clinically that it's been helpful. It's still very early. Uh, the science is very early. So I always tell patients it's not the silver bullet. It's more information than we've had so far, but we're only going to continue to learn more about our genes and how they affect our moods, but also how they affect medication helping our moods. hmm Excellent. Yeah, it's great to see all of the growth that's happening. Yeah. Um, is there anything I should be asking you, Kelly, or anything that you wish listeners knew about depression or its treatment? When a patient first comes into my office, they're exhausted. Depression is exhausting. They're hopeless. Depression <laughs> causes that. And, you know, and my, my big thing in general is there, there is hope. 
in mental health treatment through medicine, through therapy, through several other modalities, even if um, people do not respond to the first or second medication or treatment, there there are lots of options. And so when I see a patient for the first time, I just want them to feel that hope. I want them, if they could leave my office with a little bit of hope, then I I know I've done my job. I had a 60-year-old woman in my office a couple months ago, and she was unemployed and living with her daughter and not getting out and spending time with family or friends, really isolating. She was self-medicating with alcohol, you know, just, just miserable. And when I asked her about when the depression started, she said, I don't think I have depression because this is how I've always been. And as we talked about medication, and as I started her on medication, she was resistant. And I said, could you just just try it for a month? And let's have you come back in a month. And then we can decide if medication is right for you. And, you know, she she came back um, about six, six weeks later. And her countenance was completely different. There was light in her eyes and a spring in her step. And she said, I never knew I had depression because I don't remember ever feeling differently and I can't wait for the rest of my life. The following month, she had gotten a job and moved out of her daughter's home and was living on her own and she wasn't drinking and she was attending a dance class, um, a square dancing class. And mm-hmm. just, just you know, she said her life started in her 60s and she was excited for the rest of her life. And so I love that. I love that. Wow. Yeah. Well, what a great, <laughs> a great and bittersweet example. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So finding, finding hope and somebody struggling yes. or somebody who knows yes. someone who's struggling to at least look into options and know that they don't have to be forever or dramatic options, but yeah. there are options out there, whether it's biological or behavioral or both. That's it's exactly. worth figuring out. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for sharing that with us. We appreciate your time and you run a clinic in Utah County, and I know not all of our yes. listeners are, are there, but I do know how yeah. hard it is to find a good therapist or a good prescriber. So can you tell us briefly how anybody who's in Utah County that yes. might want help could find you? Yes. So my clinic is Bristol Health, and yeah, it's lo- located in Orem. You could either go to um, bristolhealth.com, B-R-I-S-T-O-L, not everyone knows that word, <laughs> bristolhealth.com, or um, call our office, 801-903-5903. Yeah, I have a team of of my favorite medical providers, therapists, not all of my favorites, of course. And we also have a (laughs) psychologist who does testing. So if we could help, we would would love to. Excellent. Well, I will post that resource in show notes for anyone who could use it. Thank you so much again for your time, Kelly. You're welcome. Visit www.elenajo.co for show notes and random photos, along with any handouts mentioned in this episode. Find elenajo.co on Instagram for daily big picture reminders, and join the big picture email list for an occasional pick-me-up in your inbox from Elena Joe. Thanks for joining us.